Well, it's a real privilege to speak to you today on Mother's Day. I wanted to start off by playing a little bit of a game. So are you all ready? You ready to play? So this is, you have to participate, you have to use your voices. So I'm going to start the beginning of a line and you have to finish the sentence. So are you ready? Good. First one. Once you pop, you can't... Very good. Oh, what a feeling. Well done. Slip, slop. Good, you're getting the idea. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's... Very good. Now, this one might be for a slightly older. My dad picks the fruit to make the cordial. Very good. Mixed response there. Snap, crackle. Very good. So we all know slogans pretty well. They've been ingrained in us. We're all thinking about the tagline now, the song that goes along with it. Hopefully you all go off with the When My Dad Picks the Fruit, it goes to Cody's cordial song. But I was reflecting this week about what would be the slogan for suffering. It wouldn't be the McDonald's tagline, I'm loving it, or Nike's, just do it. Or maybe the old yellow pages, not happy, Jan. Well, today I want to suggest a tagline for suffering. Now, that seems a little bit cliche, a little bit too superficial, but go with me. Today we're going to be talking about the tagline, contemplate, state and wait. It's a little bit like when the fire comes, we all learnt that phrase, stop, drop and roll, or get down low and go, go, go. I want us to walk away with a tagline that when suffering comes, when hardship comes, when trouble and challenge comes, we know what to do. Jesus says that in this world there will be trouble. We shouldn't be surprised when we follow him and trouble comes along. But he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. And today, I want you to walk away with these three words, contemplate, state, and wait. When trouble comes, you're not going to stop, drop, and roll. You're not going to slip, slop, slap. You're not going to crack, popple, crop, snap, crackle, and pop. It was almost as bad as some of Will's inappropriate jokes before. He took the dive first. You're going to contemplate, state, and wait. Now, some of you might be thinking, are we talking about suffering on Mother's Day? This is meant to be about breakfast in bed and handwritten cards and not having to change the nappy for the first time on one day of the year. But as Ben said this morning, Mother's Day, it is about joy. It is about those things. It is about brunch with our loved ones, but it can also carry some pain. As Ben said, it can be a time where we remember the mum who isn't here anymore, Or we think about the mum that we don't have the best relationship with. Or we remind ourselves of the longing that we have to be a mum. I know so many of my friends are on that journey. Or perhaps you are a mum like me and you love it, but it's also really hard. There are challenges. There are valleys amidst the moments. There is hardship amongst the happiness. There is challenge and there is joy. And that's a picture of life, isn't it? That's our journey of life. There is delight and joy and there is hardship and pain. And the Bible speaks to both. 
So today I want to look at a passage in Lamentations. And the Bible certainly doesn't have all the answers to pain. It doesn't have all the answers to suffering, but it certainly doesn't avoid the topic. And Lamentations is a deep dive on the idea of suffering. Granger Westberg, in his book, Good Grief, says that grief doesn't just happen in the big things, but it happens in everyday small occurrences. We get a new boss. We have a breakdown in relationship. The day didn't go as we had planned. Maybe Mother's Day wasn't the picture-perfect morning that we had hoped for. Grief comes in small micro-moments as well as the big moments. And so we need to be ready to contemplate and to state and to wait whenever those things come upon us. So for a moment, I want you to pretend with me that you aren't sitting in comfortable chairs in Mount Riverview, God's country, the Blue Mountains. I want you to pretend that you're not in the year 2022 and all of the things that that has brought. For a moment, I want you to picture yourself in 587 BC. You're in the centre of Jerusalem. You're sitting in a gutter. You can hear children wailing. They're either wailing for their parents or wailing for food. There are women begging for food for their family. The streets are deserted except for the dead bodies in the streets and in the gutter. But there's no mourning, there's no funeral procession. People are just trying to survive. In front of you lay what used to be the grand temple, the very centre of the city. It had been made with incredible columns and gold and silver, but now it was rubble. All of the gold and silver had been taken away and the grand pillars were now just stumps in the ground. Everyone has either fled or they have stayed in the city and likely will starve to death. Jerusalem has been overtaken by the Babylonians. Lamentations 1.1 says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was a queen among the provinces has now become a slave. This queen of all the cities, Jerusalem, God's prized possession, his chosen people have now been completely overrun by the Babylonians. They are in exile. They are distraught. There is death. There is hunger. If they don't die from the sword, they'll die from starvation. And even worse, the temple, the very place where they came to meet with God, the symbol that he was with them, that they were their chosen people, the identity of their city has been utterly destroyed. It would be one thing if the Sydney Opera House or the Harbour Bridge was bombed, but it would be another if that was the very place that we went to meet with God, where his presence dwelt. The city feel abandoned. They are full of despair. They are hopeless. They feel like God has left them completely. They were humiliated, a people in pain. And the writer of Lamentation starts off by speaking about that corporate pain, the full community. But by the time he gets to chapter 3, it's become about his personal pain. He says in verse 16, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. 
My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, he says. My endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. I have no more hope, no more peace, no more happiness. My soul is bowed down within me. There is no other word for what this man is feeling than depressed. He is in despair. No hope, no happiness, no peace. Have you ever felt like that? When you're in a pit that you can't get out of? When everything feels dark and you can't even see a glimmer of light? Whether it's in the big or the small, you just don't feel like you can get out, that you're stuck, that you've forgotten what happiness is. The whole book of Lamentation unpacks the despair that these people are feeling. But right in the middle of the book, you see a flicker of light. Right in the middle of the book, you can see just this glimmer of hope, this thin slice. Like standing in a dark room, you only need the tiniest bit of light to get rid of the darkness. So let me read to you from Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Right in the middle of the author's despair, right in the middle of his depression, when he has no hope, no peace, what does he declare? Let me read it to you again. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So this is what I want to unpack with you today, this short section of verses. This is the unpacking of the words that I want you to walk away with today. Contemplate, state and wait. So what does the author do in the middle of the pain that he is carrying? Well, firstly, he contemplates. He remembers, he calls to mind, he takes control of his thoughts. He says, but, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. 
He is active and intentional. He isn't waiting until he feels better. He isn't waiting until God's hope ushers in with his emotion. He calls it to mind. He takes control of his thoughts. He's decisive and he contemplates. What does he contemplate? The truth about God. He lifts his eyes from the devastation around him, from the despair in front of him. He lifts his eyes to the character and the faithfulness of God. Because when he's looking around, he has no hope. But when he calls to mind, when he contemplates, when he lifts his view to God, he declares the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. When everything around him was literally falling down, the account of this Babylonian destruction says that every building was destroyed in the city. When everything is falling down, when everything is changing, what does he call to mind? The one thing that will never change. The one thing that will never get torn down. The steadfast love of the Lord. When his soul is empty, when he is bereft of peace, when there is no peace left, when all the things that used to fill him up with happiness and joy and peace have been taken away, what does he look to? The mercy that never runs out. The waterfall of steadfast love that never stops flowing. The tap that is never turned up from his heavenly God. The one that will never run out, that will continue to overflow. That's what he lifts his eyes. He doesn't stay fixated on his situation because if he does, he will stay in his despair. But he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Many of you will remember the story of Stuart Diver. It was from 25 years ago when there was a landslide in Threadbow. He was a 27-year-old ski instructor. He was staying in the staff lodging with his wife in Threadbow. He said he heard what sounded like a bomb when just kilos and kilos of dirt came plummeting down the hill and the entire lodge was flattened. His wife was killed instantly and Stuart lay there in darkness. He was underneath a giant concrete slab and stuck in mud. He said the water would come up and then go down and every time it came up he would have to lift his, his body up and press his head against this concrete slab so that he could keep breathing. He said very often the water would come up just to his lips and then it would reside. Stuart spent 63 hours underground during that landslide, lying in cold mud and complete darkness. So how did Stuart, stuck in the mud and the darkness, grieving the death of his wife beside him, how did he survive? He thought about the light. When rescue crews made, crews made contact, they told him everything that they could see about the day outside. Stuart said he would start hallucinating, picturing the bright sunny days, the crisp snow that he knew so well, all of the weather conditions, particular trees that he knew. He'd picture what the day would be like when he was rescued and out into the sunshine again. Rescuers said that the very first thing that he said after he had been underground for three days when he was lifted out and saw the paramedic, he said, that sky's fantastic. 
How did Stuart make it through the darkness? He thought about the light. He called it to mind. He contemplated the truth beyond his own situation. He kept thinking about the light. And we need to do the same. When we're in the darkness, when we're in the middle of grief, when we're facing challenge and pain and suffering, we need to hold on to the light. We need to call it to mind. We need to bring the steadfast love of the Lord into our thoughts and focus on that. We need to think about it, consider it, remember who God is. For the author of Lamentations, it didn't look like God's love never ceased. It didn't feel like his mercies were new every morning. There was death and destruction and despair. But he didn't rely on his feelings. He didn't rely on what he could see. He called the truth to mind. He contemplated, he remembered, he took control of his thoughts. And he didn't just make this truth up. This little passage from Lamentations is a quote from a passage in Exodus 34. So the author of Lamentations knew his Bible. He knew the scripture. And in that moment when he looked at the temple destroyed, when there was death all around him, what did he call to mind? God's truth, God's scripture, Exodus 34. And that's why reading our Bible is so important. It's not just a good thing to do. It's our sword. The word of God is our sword. So when we come to these moments, we don't have to wonder what we need to do. We've got this storehouse of God's word ready. It's our ammo. It's our armor. So when suffering comes, we go, that's okay. Because I've been immersing myself in God's word. I've been reading his scripture. I've been memorizing it. And we bring it out because our feelings aren't going to carry us through. Our sight isn't going to carry us through suffering. We need to bring out the word that we have been digesting, that we've been storing it up and say, we've got a word for this. I know exactly what I need to call to mind. I need to call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Because your heart and your eyes and your emotions will tell you that the steadfast love is ceasing. That his mercy is coming to an end. So you say, no, I know the truth. I've been storing it up. I've been waiting for this moment where I can declare it. I can call it to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. I may not be able to see it, but I'm going to believe it. I'm going to stand on that truth. I'm going to call it to mind. I'm going to contemplate and be ready. We need to contemplate. And secondly, we need to state it. Sometimes all we have the energy for is to think about God's love. But the next thing the author does is he speaks it out loud. He states it. Verse 24 of that passage in Lamentations 3 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, back in verse 17, only seven verses earlier, the author says that his soul is bereft of peace. It's empty. It's dry. It's run out. His soul remembers his affliction and it's bowed down within him. But look at the turnaround in verse 24. Now his soul is speaking and his soul isn't speaking about the despair. It's saying something different. His soul is saying, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. And we need to speak out the truth 
There is power in speaking it out, speaking to our own situation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a theologian, says, Have you realised that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? When you wake up in the morning, what thoughts are coming into your mind? Are you just listening to them or are you talking to them? Because this guy in Lamentations, if he just listened to his thoughts, he would sit in that pit of his despair and never get out. But instead, he says, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. He is telling his soul, no, you listen to me, buddy. I know you want to tell me a different message, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the eternal word because you're going to turn around. This is going to turn around. The Lord is my portion, he says. Therefore, I will hope in him. There's such power in speaking things out. And whether it's speaking out the word of God, saying it out loud, whether it's saying it in prayer, declaring the truth of God, or whether it's singing it, there's such power in remembering who God is and saying it out loud. Not that I would choose it this way, but I had an opportunity to test out this theory yesterday afternoon. As I was preparing this sermon, we had just got back from a lovely day. My son Judah just turned four yesterday, so we had a wonderful day out. And my youngest son Harry had had a sleep in the car. And my boys have often, when they used to have day naps, they often wake up grumpy. And if I ever got to have a day nap, I'd be so stoked. I would never wake up grumpy. I just would be delighted that I got to sleep during the day. But Harry often wakes up grumpy. And yesterday was no, uh, no different. He woke up in a very bad mood. He wanted to be held, he didn't want it to be held. He wanted to be cuddled, he didn't want to be cuddled. He wanted his bottle, he didn't want his bottle. He wanted food, he's throwing the food. He was not happy. And because I was preparing this sermon, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll just state it. Maybe I'll speak out the word of God. So the song that came to mind was Good, Good Father. So I'm sitting there with my wailing baby on the floor screaming out as loud as I could in my terrible singing voice, good, good father, over the wailing of Harry. Now, it took a fair few renditions, but eventually Harry settled down. And when he stopped crying, I started crying, thinking about how good my father was and how loved I am. But even before Harry stopped crying, I realised that as I sung out those words, something else was changing and it was my heart. All of a sudden, it didn't matter as much that I had this whingy one-year-old on my lap. I was reflecting on my good, good father and how much he loved me, how I'm loved by him. It lifted my gaze. There was something powerful about speaking those words out. And that's why it's so powerful when we sing corporately together, when we can encourage one another with the word of God and speak it out. And I wish that this was three steps to stop a crying baby. It doesn't always work like that. But it's good to speak out the word of God, to contemplate, state, and then finally to wait. In Lamentations 3.25, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for the Lord. We are not good at waiting we hate being on hold on the phone. We hate sitting in traffic. We don't like being in a queue. And we certainly don't often wait quietly. We 
two big sighs like that. We tap our foot. We, someone's a bit slow in taking our order at the restaurant. We kind of look around and think, what are they doing? You know, I'm the one who's always trying to make eye contact with them. Like, I need my kids to get some food. Can you hurry up? We're not good at waiting. I was reflecting on how we used to have this thing called dial-up internet. And you were, you, yeah, some of you remember. I really wanted to play, I wasn't organised enough, I really wanted to play the... You'd have to turn it on and then you'd leave it for a little while to make this kind of white noise, hashy sound, like it was connecting to aliens. And then you'd finally sort of log on and when I was in high school, you would go to MySpace and you'd wait forever for the photos to load and the soundtrack they'd chosen. And then halfway through, the internet would cut out again because grandma called. And you'd have to go through the whole process again. And we really learnt to wait. Well, now, if you click on a page and it's like the wheel of death even begins to spin a little bit, you're out. You're just like, I'm not waiting for this. Something must be wrong. We have learnt to be impatient We get food delivered instantly. Everything is quick. We can order pizza from Domino's and just watch the timer go down as it comes delivered to our door. Who loves that? I love that. But the Lord says it's good to wait patiently for the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. It is good to wait And after we have contemplated the truths of God, after we have stated them, then we need to wait. Just like Harry sitting on my lap, just like the man in Lamentations in the destruction, just like Jesus when he was tempted in the desert, the devil came to him again. He just spoke out the word of God again and again. And it says that until the the devil tempted him, until he was finally done, and then he left. Jesus just had to wait until he was finished. My parents were staying with us on Friday night. They were looking after our kids when we were at a wedding. And so Saturday morning, I saw my dad get out his Bible and pull out this very elaborate folder system. It held all these pieces of printed out paper in them. It had bullet points on there and little boxes for him to fill out. I said to him, what's that? He said, oh, it's my my prayer journal. He said, "I've, I've been doing it for 20 years. My dad's an engineer. And he has developed this elaborate system where he has one page for every day. He's made it himself. And at the beginning, it has all the good things about God. He fills out, he sort of chooses a character of God and meditates on that. He writes it down in his little box. Then his next section is he has a confession section. He actually even has a paragraph in there of all the ways, the different ways, the general categories that he fails in. And he chooses one for that day. My mum's next to us and she said, are you sure they fit all on page? (laughs) And then for the majority of the page, he has all the things that he's praying for. He has every member of our family, he has people from his church, he has people who are looking for work, different friends and family who are in broken relationships. He's very methodical and he goes through and he writes down the names and he prays the things. And he said to me, Anna, you wouldn't believe the answers to prayer that I've had over the last 20 years. But he said, none of them have been fast. None of them have been quick. He said, sometimes I've prayed for someone every day for 12 years. 
until I saw that relationship repaired. My dad's an engineer, so I shouldn't be surprised that he's so methodical in his prayer. He said, it doesn't work for everyone. I'm thinking, you're kidding. (laughs) But he was able to see the faithfulness of God. There was no quick fix. He's able to look back to the year 2000 and say, wow, I prayed for that woman to have a baby. She was 20 then and now she's 40 and she's had a baby. God doesn't always answer our prayer. Sometimes we're left waiting, but one day is coming when there's going to be no more prayers because God will be in front of us and all of our desires will be met. There'll be no more contemplating because God in all of His glory will be in front of us. We don't need to call it to mind. It will be there. There'll be no more stating or speaking out the Word of God because all we'll be doing all day is singing with the angels, glory, glory, glory to the one on high. And best of all, there'll be no more waiting because all the fullness of God will be there. All those unanswered prayers will be fulfilled. All the glimmers of goodness that we get here on earth, the joy of celebrating our mother, of celebrating family and goodness, all those tastes that we get of goodness, they'll be in their fullness in heaven. We'll get to see the full picture and God will comfort us like a mother comforts her children. We'll run into His arms like a child running into their mother's arms. We'll be with God and He'll be with us. That's the day we get to look forward to. So I hope you have a wonderful day celebrating and honouring your mums. I'll be praying for those of you who are missing your loved ones. And until that day, let's contemplate on who God is. Let's state it, speak it out. And let's wait with patience and expectation that that day is coming. It will be here soon. God bless you.